stick with it. Don't question the process. Just enjoy the journey and always know that the answers are always going to be out there. Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larby. Welcome back, guys. It is Sarah Larby, and you are listening to another episode of Where Should I Invest? Episode number 22 with Corey McKinnon. I wanted to take a moment just to give you guys an update on what I've been up to and I've been traveling a little bit for work and I don't see any more travel hopefully anytime soon, um, not too soon anyways, so I should have some time to upload more of these podcasts and I've been still fairly busy. We wrapped up our last meeting before the summer for So Right, so that was uh, in June. We had about 150 people come out to watch. Danielle Chason was talking about flipping properties. Claire Drage was talking about getting your credit up to par and sparkling. So that was really well received. And the next So Right event is going to be September 5th. So if you guys are interested in coming out, please let me know. You can either find us at sowright.com. You can find us at the Eventbrite page if you Google it. Um, or you can even just send me an email if you want more information about it, which is sarah at sarahlarby.com. But yeah, no, I'm really excited. So I am looking forward. I'm going to spend the long weekend this weekend at our cottage. And it is a cottage that we rent the majority of the time, but we figured we would take the long weekends for the first year and enjoy them. <laughs> so we have some friends meeting us there and we plan on having a good time. And also the flip that I'm working on is about two weeks away from being done. So I think all in all, it's probably going to be a seven to eight week project once it's all fully completed and we plan on selling it and hopefully we get a good price for it. But I think we should be good. I think we should be good. We're looking for the next deal. If you guys have anything in mind or a deal, um, we're, we're looking for the next one now because it, it's hard to find them. It definitely is harder and harder to find them. We've got some mailers out there. We are looking on Kijiji, putting out, you know, actually we're going door to door as well. So lots of different things that we're doing to try to get those under market deals. And we have to get them at the right price. That is a big thing when you're flipping is you want to make sure that you're buying the property under market and that your renovations plus the cost of holding, your cost of insurance, all the other additional costs and the cost of selling, that you're gonna make money in your pocket that's gonna actually be worth doing. So, and then just keep in mind guys, there's like taxes on top of it too. So just factor in all your numbers when you're looking for a flip, but definitely am actively, actively searching for something. I will say when you have the deal, the money comes much easier. There's always people with money that are looking for deals, but there's not as many deals at the right price to make it a really great deal. Anyways, that was my rant. <laughs> as you can tell, I've been really searching every day for something to buy and keep my crew on the go. So that brings us into our discussion actually with the next guest, Corey McKinnon. And Corey has a lot of experience with finding below market deals, finding deals that are not on MLS. He is very well versed in just many, many things. My favorite strategy, Burr, the Burr strategy as well. 
and uh, and Corey is a experienced real estate investor, and we're going to meet him shortly. He's got over a decade of experience and started off investing as his first property in a sixplex, and that was back in 2005, and today he's got over 60 plus rental units, so he's going to share some great experience, some great knowledge, things with you guys that I think you will definitely enjoy. And Corey speaks at many different investing events as well. So you guys have might, might have heard of him in the past as well. But I also wanted to take a moment and just thank Kellen P and Paul C for leaving two great reviews on the podcast on the iTunes and thank you guys, I really, really appreciate it. It definitely helps visibility for the podcast and for people to find it in the search. The other thing is I had a question actually from Ronald who emailed me, and you guys feel free to email me your questions if you want me to answer them on the podcast. And he was asking if I would invest in condos, why or why not, and do I like condos? And I guess the short answer is, Personally, I don't really like investing in condos. I mean, there is definitely ways that you can make money. I'm sure people do very well in condos. I'm just not a big fan because I personally like the control of having a freehold, whether it's single family property, townhouse, etc. Like I own it. And I think the problem in Ontario is condo boards, as an example, like if they want to raise those monthly fees tomorrow by... 10%, 20%, like whatever it is, there's nothing that tells them that they can't. But in Ontario, as landlords, we can only raise the rent, you know, under 2% every year. This year, it's 1.8% that we can raise it once a year. So imagine holding a condo that you're barely breaking even on, and then all of a sudden your maintenance fees go up because that's what the condo board decided to do, and you can only raise the rent 1.8%. Like, how frustrating would that be? And then on top of that, I'm, I'm definitely not a big fan of um, risk in terms of potential special assessments. I know my sister was living in a condo and then all of a sudden she got a letter saying everybody in the unit that owns a unit is going to be paying $1,000 towards furniture. And I think they fought it and they didn't have to do it at the end. But like, that's really annoying. Like, imagine if that was your only cash flow with $1,000 <laughs> and then all of a sudden, poof, it's gone. And then the other pieces, a lot of them really limit you to the types of tenants that you can have, right? So if you wanted to try to get a little bit more money in your pocket and go through the short-term Airbnb route, well, guess what? A lot of them don't allow short-term rentals less than three or six months. And so it's just that lack of control that I really just don't like. And so I, I personally stay away from condos. I think that they can be a good investment. Like there are definitely some positives. I think really the only one I can think of <laughs> is probably there's a little bit less maintenance. But other than that, I mean, like, yeah, there might be like less insurance that you have to pay and less things to do. But overall, just buy something that you have the control over. That would be my recommendation. And of course, like you guys, feel free to email me and let me know if you think otherwise. Or, you know, if you have a condo and you're doing really well and this is really your your bread and butter and there's other things in there that you know we should consider when we're buying a condo i also think pre-construction is different this is i'm just talking about like after resale condo investing but there are 
I think, great ways to make money. When you have control over freehold properties, you can, in my opinion, go a lot further in the long run. So that was my little rant. And Ronald, I hope I answered your question. I personally think that even though condos may be a little bit cheaper when you look at the grand scheme of things, maybe in Toronto, I would just say look a little bit further out of the city and find something that you own free and clear that don't have any fees or things that you may not have full control over. So anyways, thank you guys. I really appreciate the questions. And if anybody like Ronald has a question and you would like me to talk about it, talk through it on the podcast, then please email me. And you can also check out my website, which is sarahlarby.com. So anyways, without further ado, let's speak with our next guest, Corey McKinnon, and let's bring him on. Hi, Corey. How are you? Well, excellent, Sarah. How about you today? Very good. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today and learn lots about you. I'm excited too. Thank you very much for having us on. Excellent. So I'm just curious how you got started in real estate investing to begin with. Well, I guess back when I was in college, I remember a friend of mine coming up, like a, another person in my class coming up to me just saying, hey, Corey, there's this book. You got to read it. I was curious at the time because I was into personal development and bettering myself and had already read The uh, Wealthy Barber, I think, at that point. And um, the book that he mentioned was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So even though it's up for debate, you know, is the entire book totally factual or, or what have you, but it's either way, I think it's a great story that's inspired so many different people around the world to get started. So my first property was a sixplex back in 2005, and we just kept buying and buying from there. Wow. So a six flex right off the bat, what made you decide to go into multifamily as your first investment? You know, I guess I just saw the numbers, right? I mean, when you run the numbers of a multifamily building or a small apartment building or even a large apartment building, I mean, the numbers are just so attractive. I'm sort of a mathematician and I've always been very strong at math. So when you start looking at the mortgage pay down, when the numbers are bigger and how the rents will support the carrying costs, even if you have sometimes one or two units empty, or at least you're not that much out of pocket if you do have to do a quick reno and turn a unit over in a month or something like that. So, you know, versus single family, I've just always migrated towards more multifamily. And I like that you can push the value up of the property if you buy it undervalued, under-rented. The bank definitely looks at a multifamily property more like a business. And when you improve the business, the profitability of it, the cash flows and the income, it's worth more to the marketplace. Single family homes are great too. We also have single family homes. I find that they're based more on comparables and those sorts of things when you go to refinance them. Yeah, absolutely. So did you know anybody beforehand that was an investor that kind of helped you along the way or was it the books? Well, I'll tell you a little bit more of the backstory. So I guess when I was young, my dad actually had a couple properties. So he dabbled in real estate and whether it was properties or stock market, it always seemed like my dad did the opposite of what you're supposed to do, which is buy low and sell high. I guess he usually he bought it at the peak of the market and then never totally wrote a real estate cycle and ended up usually selling or having a bad tenant or something of that nature. But I'm a big believer that there's no such thing as, as a bad tenant, just an uneducated landlord. So I kind of took it upon myself that there was definitely lessons to be learned there. And you know, if my dad could do it, I could do it as well. I also had a, a former boss of mine who was a landlord too. When I was running, uh, I was a VP of Student Works Painting. My first boss in that company had a duplex and he did very well with it as well. But I guess the person that sort of like mentored me more one-on-one was my actual landlord for that sixplex. So I actually used to rent in that sixplex for 
four years before I bought it. And I'd always pick his brain, right? Like I know he had a chance to get in through his mentor. Like they actually lent him some money on the deal to get him into a property when I was like 19. He got into ownership pretty early. So I learned a lot from him, like what are the key principles that he looks for in properties, the type of construction he looks for, must have parking, must have this, you know, no weird Frankenstein renovation. When you come up with those 12 solid principles from somebody who had a couple dozen properties and was able to get out of corporate as well, I mean, it was pretty cool to be able to learn and mentor under him. Yeah, absolutely. So did he do any type of vendor take back or how did you finance the sixplex? I guess on the first deal, we kind of financed it the traditional way. So back then you needed 25% down payment. I think we did like a small credit back on closing. It wasn't anything significant, like five or $10,000. But the good thing was that he ended up doing a lot of renovations to the property, like big renovations that I wasn't really capable of at the time. I mean, it had like an asbestos tile roof that he took off and reshingled and disposed of. It had galvanized plumbing. It had some old knob and tube wiring things like that. So when it was handed over to me with all the big stuff done, that's when I could really just focus on, okay, how can I get better amenities in the building and make the units just pop a little bit more, take them to the next level. But I was really glad that Mark sort of did you know, 90% of the work and most of it was the hard work. And then I kind of did the last 10% that kind of got the most rent raises and all that sort of stuff. Because your tenants don't really, they're not going to pay more rent if it's like galvanized plumbing versus new plumbing, right? So I did the things in the building that would actually like increase the, the rent roll and have a better return when we went to refinance it. So I think that's a really important point because if you are really looking to extract as much value as possible, those are the types of things that you need to do. And I know that you have done, you've bought many deals under value, many uh, multifamilies under value and raised and increased uh, property to be able to get higher rents. Can we hear more about your strategy on that? Sure. You know, I guess it's always been drilled into our heads as real estate investors, right? Like you make your money on the buy. So I really took that to heart. And I'm sure there's people out there that have gotten much better deals than myself. But, you know, I just took it upon myself that, you know, whenever you buy a property, you're actually taking on a, you know, sort of a problem or a headache or a project, right? So, and if if you're going to take it on, you need to make sure it's worth your while. And one of the best ways to make sure it's worth your while, Sarah, is to make sure that you get it on a bit of a discount or on sale at first, right? So who doesn't like a sale? Everybody likes to get a bit of a deal. Sometimes the deals come through just from a poor MLS listing. Sometimes I, I bought one property where the owner hadn't actually seen the property for like 10 years. Wow. And he was relying on the, yeah, he was relying on the advice of the realtor who listed it. And I think the realtor just didn't see the potential in the building because we had a chance of like moving some walls around and making certain units bigger and certain units smaller to maximize the rent. We just look every day for that sort of stuff, right? And over a long period of time, when you just keep at it, whether you're looking for stuff that's mismarketed or in the wrong category. I've even had people advertise the wrong numbers, like wrong sale price, wrong rent roll, all these different things, right? Nobody ever actually calls them out on it. So they change the ad. It just kind of turns into a stale listing. And that's when we find that there's either a deal to be had or we find our deals off market. It's probably, probably found more of our deals off market than we have on market. So some of the listeners are going to be fairly new and I do want to dig a little bit into finding off market deals. Like what's your strategy? I think probably the simplest thing for people that are new, Sarah, is, you know, obviously real estate takes work, right? Like real estate works if you work at real estate. And one of the best things that people can do is speak with confidence to everybody that they interact with, whether it's at work, their circle of friends, even though their friends might not really totally understand what they're doing. But don't be afraid to let them know, like, I'm a real estate investor. I buy properties. And if you ever know of anybody that's looking to sell a property, let me know. 
And they were just having conversations with people, right? One of the properties I bought was actually one of my neighbors. And he was out there with the first grass cut of the season, right? So he's getting ready to fire up the lawnmowers and all that sort of stuff. And I actually had a different motive in my head. I was actually going to go talk to him and say, hey, I've been plowing our back parking lot, which you share part of. Would you like to contribute to that? But, you know, when I asked him, hey, what's going on? How are you doing? He's like, well, I'm actually cutting the grass and doing some landscaping because I'm getting ready to sell the place, right? So don't be afraid to have conversations with people. The more conversations you have, the more people you interact with, you know, you go to these events, whether they're networking events or paid events. I think that the people that you meet at those events are so invaluable. The content's great and what you learn at those events are great, but the people that you meet that you're going to end up doing deals with in the future or that you can pick up the phone and ask them like, hey, how did you do this? Or how did you do that? Have you ever run into this before? Those are the things that are very hard to put a price tag on. They're invaluable. So expanding your network is so important and having those conversations every day. Just work the phone, really. It's- Absolutely. So like, how did you get your $5,000 property? So you got a property recently, like in this is 2018, and it was five grand. <laughs> Am I yeah. hearing that correctly? Sure. Yeah, I can take you through that deal. So that deal's in Sarnia, Ontario. And I still shake my head a little bit too. You know, when I tell people about it, they're like, are you sure that wasn't in Detroit or something like that? Like what's going on? You know, when I explain the story, people can understand that the property wasn't worth a crazy amount of money, but we still got it for a very good deal. So we were just flowering houses, like driving around town, me and my staff, and teaching them how to look for abandoned, boarded up properties, you know, properties that obviously have problems, they have issues, letters in the door or letters in the window or whatever, right? Citations from the city. So uh, they found this one property in a rougher part of town. It was all boarded up and we left the flyer and, you know, the fellow called me about a month, month and a half later. And it's funny, he was actually staying at the Holiday Inn because his property caught on fire. Wow. So he's been he was been waiting for like the last three months to get a settlement through his insurance company. And my sister used to work at the Holiday Inn. So when he first called, it actually came up as my sister's name because I had the Holiday Inn as one of her work numbers on the phone. So it was kind of funny because I answered the phone. I was like, hi, Lindsay, how are you? He's like, actually, Paul. And uh, so I backpedaled pretty quickly because I knew it was from one of my flyers. You know, just trying to feel him out for, through the situation. He was just super happy that he was getting a big payout. And the property... Even if it was fully renovated and brought back up by the insurance company to fully rebuild, it wouldn't be worth as much as the check he was getting for his buyout. Uh, He even looked at demolishing and leveling the house, which probably would have cost him $20,000. But by the time he did that, what's a lot worse in that part of town? It's a rougher part of town. Uh, There's better options in town. Like Sarnia is not quite desirable enough where you're buying infill lots, like buying houses, knocking them down, rebuilding them like in Toronto and Vancouver and even cities like Kitchener and even London's doing that now. But he was looking for more like thirty or forty thousand dollars, and once we saw the property, we just started feeling him out for lower prices, and we we mentioned ten thousand dollars, and it seemed like he was open to it. So once I saw the property, he was like, "Hey, what do you think?" You know, we were the only person he was looking at for this, and I just said, "Hey, you know, I feel embarrassed offering you this low of a number, but there's a lot of rebuild cost here. Like to rebuild this, I don't have your insurance papers in front of me, but probably looking at like one hundred fifty thousand dollars, and then I'm not totally sure what this thing's going to get appraised at after." So there's probably about a 30, 40 second pause. And he said, sure, let's do it. If you're serious about this, let's go ahead. And we signed the deal on his front porch. And wow. yeah, cool. we both wanted three days. I wanted three days to review the engineer's report. And he wanted three days just to make sure he was actually getting a check from his insurance company. And we just met again and firmed up the deal. And you know, I knew that I didn't have the time to take on that big of a renovation. I already have a fire property that I'm rebuilding of my own. So I found a local person here that was willing to take the deal over and we sold it for uh you know, a good chunk of money on a wholesale. Awesome. Well, congrats on that. And that makes a lot of 
you know, you can't just sit around and wait for deals to happen or things to come to you. It sounds like you're actively out there, actively looking for them, like you said, knocking on doors. And I think that's what it takes these days is to be active if you're looking for a deal rather than just waiting around for something to pop up on the MLS. It does. You know, you really need to have, if I were to give anybody some advice, you need to have like a full marketing web going on, right? So you need to have ads up, you need to have flyers going out, you need to be knocking on doors, having conversations with all kinds of different people that touch real estate every day. So when your web is big enough, you know, there's going to be some things that come into your web and then you have a chance to negotiate. Not every deal, like we probably looked at five deals that month before that one ended up coming through, right? So it's not always like these things aren't always slam dunks, right? But sometimes people stop working at real estate before they even see success. So just keep at it. Absolutely. So you mentioned earlier that you're doing this full time. Can you walk us through how you transition from having a job to doing this full time? Sure. would love to, because I know, I know that's a goal for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the dream, right? To be able to invest in real estate and then be able to quit your day job. So right. the only concern I usually find is that people want to do that too quickly. They're like, I want to quit my job and replace all my income in like a year. So I just mm-hmm. advise people to have some patience. But, you know, I had a corporate job, much like yourself, Sarah. And, you know, it was one of those things where I was working in somebody else's business and it was great. I love the culture. I love working with the people. Um, I, I used to work with people under 25 to help them run their first franchise business in the summer months. And it just wasn't my business. It wasn't my dream. I actually had a chance to buy in for a small ownership share, maybe about 10 or 15% of the company. And I just felt like at the time, the evaluation of the company was primo evaluation. So I just said, you know what, instead of investing $200,000 in the business for that, I'm just going to keep buying real estate and that'll be my escape plan someday. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you go further on in life, which I'm sure you'll find once you get married, you know, your time to devote to your business venture kind of decreases and then you start having kids, it decreases again. And then you need to find a way to still be you know, 10% more productive when you have 20 or 25% less time. And it just got to a point where it was just sort of like being squished at both ends. And I just said, you know, we had a conversation or a good sit down heart to heart with my wife. And I said, look, I'm not sure if I can keep doing it. You know, I've been doing this for 17 years. I love the company. I love the culture. And I love working with the people there. But it's just, it's getting to be too much. So real estate's going really well. If I could just double my amount of holdings or double the amount of uh, cash flow, I'd be able to have that conversation with the owner and just say, hey, it's time for me to move on. And because at that point, we've helped to put the company and work together to, uh, you know, triple the profits over that period of time. And, you know, I wanted to make sure I left the company in good hands. Of course. Um, That's what we did. We really doubled down that year and uh, we refinanced a lot of our properties and, you know, we sought out investors and did joint ventures to the point where, and fortunately, maybe somebody above was looking after me too, but we just really scored on some great deals, some, some home run type deals or grand slam type deals that where I was able to increase my cash flow by like four or $5,000 that year. So at that point, yeah. And we also had, you know, we lost close friends under 50 and family members are starting to have health issues. So you start to look at life a little bit differently when you're having all those experiences, right? So looking back, it was a tough decision to make, but it was probably one of the best decisions I could have made because then I had more time to spend with kids and family and, you know, pursuing my passions in life. Absolutely. It's not always about the real estate. It's about what it can allow you to do and the time that it allows you to get back and that freedom. Big time. So when you transitioned full time and you re- you know, had a few properties reappraised, refinanced, and you found more properties, how did you finance them moving forward with no job? 
Uh, great question. Fortunately, I was able to do that before I left my corporate job, so that was okay. Because sometimes even like with the way that your tax return ends up, you can almost do that for a year after you're done. Okay. And they're still looking at your last year's tax return. But um, I guess at that point, the properties were a profitable venture as well, right? So when you look at the cash flow they're spitting out and the net income they were producing, they were also willing to look at me like, well, you're, this isn't the passive business venture for you anymore, Corey. This is definitely active. So, you know, we can't count all your expenses, all your expenses and all the income, but, you know, definitely Revenue Canada or when we're looking at financing, we're going to let the underwriters know that this is a full-time venture for you. So still able to qualify, but you know, being qualifying is you're getting over a dozen properties. You know, we're approaching two dozen properties right now. It becomes more and more challenging for us when we're taking on more and more money partners and doing creative deals. Okay. So in terms of multifamily, are you specifically looking at that as well, just for financing purposes? Maybe you could rephrase the question a little bit. Yeah, sure. So multifamily properties sometimes when you've got you know five plus units, they don't look at your finances as much as the property itself. Does that help at all? Or are you still just doing it with money partners that it, it doesn't matter? Gotcha. Yeah. So when property is over four units, five units, six units, yes, they, they tend to look more at the property than you as the person, uh, depending on the bank, because there's still some regular banks of the top five here in Canada, the big five that'll still do six boxes and, and under. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we're starting to look at bigger buildings now, 12 units, 24 units, and the bank definitely looks at the deal more than you. They want to make sure you have good credit history and you have a track record doing this. They'd want to do a deal with a total newbie, but yes, they, it definitely helps when you're looking at bigger buildings because they look at the building more than you. Okay. Awesome. So Corey, you're currently in the process of writing your own book. Why did you decide to write yeah. a book and what is it about? Well, I guess I've always been passionate about writing. I guess it's another way to have a voice and to let people know your trials and tribulations. Because I'm a big believer that, you know, when you share your pain, your pain gets cut in half. And when you share your joy, your joy gets doubled and tripled and quadrupled, right? When you're sharing it with the world. So as well, like every single day, every week, I'm always getting asked, much like I'm sure yourself, that, you know, tell me about real estate. Tell me about how you did it. And, you know, you can only pour into somebody so much in that 10 minute conversation, or even if it was like 30 or 60 minutes. So I just thought, you know what, I've actually helped other people write books and I've been on their editing teams before. And at my old company, I was actually helped to rework a lot of the systems and manuals in the company and I, I enjoy doing it. I feel like I have a pretty good grasp on the written word. So I just thought, you know what, this is a chance for me to have a whole bunch of different chapters that people can read that could help them in real estate in the future and inspire them too. Like I also want to do it to show others what's possible and uh, to be an inspiration. I mean, I was a little bit bashful about doing it at first, but so many people are just like, you know, Corey, you have way more experience than the average person, even the average investor. You really are a top 1% here in Canada, you know, and I really felt like it was my duty at that point and my purpose to share and help other people have an easier path. That's really my main outcome with the book is to, I hate to see people struggle. I hate to see people spin their wheels when if they just had like that one missing piece of knowledge or that one piece of encouragement that helps them bridge the gap, you know, for me, that would just make it all worthwhile. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I think it's really important, like you said, to give back and to help others that might be struggling, that are looking for that little bit of a push or information, like you said. And, uh, you know, same reason too, I'm, I'm not as far ahead in writing my book, but I'm, I'm on the fourth chapter. <laughs> so, but I think it's important to have something that you can share with many people and be able to see if, you know, maybe one day you're going to help them become millionaires as well, which would be awesome. 
For sure. And I, I think it's important that as you become more and you do better in life, we need to give back more as well. Like, you know, the more you give back, that's that's actually how you get joy instead of just sitting on, you know, your income or all your experiences. Why not share them with other people? For sure. It's, uh, we're, we're meant to be creators. We're meant to share with other people. So you also speak often on stages. Were you always so natural? Um, actually, no. So, uh, you know, I was thinking about this today. I mean, looking back at my grade school, um, you know, experiences and stuff like that, I was always the youngest in the class. And when I was young, I actually had some issues with my ear canals. Like some people actually get tubes put in their ears when they're young, right? And I never did that, but I never really realized it, right? Because that's just your experience. If your hearing isn't all that great, that's you just feel that's normal, right? So was never the most confident speaker. And when you think back to grade school, most people can probably relate that students that did the best at their public speeches, seems like they probably got some help with their speeches, right? Just the humor and the stories and everything that was blended in, like how could a grade four or five do that, right? So I think public speaking just kind of gave me a bad taste in my mouth from a young age. Frankly, you could kind of get by with it at a young age too, right? And it took me till my first uh, sales job when I was working with student in student works painting. I learned to turn the switch on where I could be that shy, quiet athlete type person. But when it came time to influence or help other people or sell them a product or a service, I, I knew how to turn the switch on. And with lots and lots of practice, I mean, you know, I was literally doing sales calls every single week. Then I started working for that company full time and getting to do uh, group presentations in front of all the classes at almost every major university in Canada. You know, so when you, it just becomes a lot more natural, right? You can learn how to work the crowd and make sure people are engaged and interested in what you're saying. And, you know, I guess I'm a bit of a closet comedian. I like to make people laugh, so that doesn't hurt either. Great. That's awesome. So if you were to look back on your journey and let's just say for a second that you were back to being your 18 year old self, what would you want to tell yourself? Yeah, great question. You know, I, I don't think I'd want to give too much information because then it would turn into that whole movie, The Butterfly Effect, right? Where give your, yourself some really life-changing advice. I don't think I'd want to really change too much, right? I think maybe just instill a bit more confidence in myself at 18. Like, hey, you know, you will figure it out. You'll find out what your best strengths are and what your best talents are. And you'll end up doing extremely well and being able to impact more people than you'd think or imagine, right? So just stick with it. Don't question the process. Just enjoy the journey and always know that the answers are always going to be out there. Great advice. Perfect. So the next part of our podcast is called the lightning round. So I'm going to ask you five questions and just share within a minute, whatever you comes to mind first. Ready? Oh, wow. The pressure. Should I get a stopwatch or what? <laughs> um, all right. Question number one, what is your favorite real estate investing book ever? All right. Favorite real estate investing book ever. I mean, I've read a lot of them and I guess, you know, some of the early ones I already mentioned may not have been my favorites, although they were formative. I'm actually holding one of my favorites right now because it's more of a system. It's, it's really well-rounded and I, I really like the voice it's written in. So it's Gary Keller's book, who is obviously Keller Williams Real Estate, The Millionaire Real Estate Investor. So I just find it touches on a lot of points and it shows people that they don't have to have like 50 houses to be a millionaire in real estate. You can do really well with like five houses over time. Great. Highly recommend it. Yeah, it is a great book and a great author as well. I think he's written many great books. Question number two, what is your favorite podcast? Favorite podcast other than Sarah's podcast? Um, <laughs> you know, I guess I got introduced to podcasts when uh, Tim Ferriss started his podcast. 
and his just took off and exploded, right? So, and, you know, I'm a big fan of what Tim Ferriss does. He's all about, you know, finding easier ways to do things, do it bigger, better, faster. People call that hacking or shortcuts or what have you. But, and just the amount of influence he has, you know, the kinds of people he gets on his podcast. It's not really about real estate investing per se, but I think everybody that's on his podcast, you can definitely learn a lot from them. They're very influential and, you know, huge in their field. So it's it's interesting. Everyone that I listen to, whether it's on relationships or health and fitness or nutrition or, or something like that, I mean, I'm, I'm always making notes and always learning because you can apply those different things to anywhere in life. Absolutely. Yeah, it is a great podcast. Question number three, what do you do for fun aside from real estate investing? What do you do for fun aside from real estate investing? Well, I love to travel. So I feel that we live in an amazing world. And gosh, even if we could just see a small percentage of that world in our lifetime, be fantastic, right? So um, I fell in love with that uh, show on TV a few years ago called Departures, where these guys just sort of like stopped their day job and traveled the world with a camera crew and went to some really remote places of the world. And it just reminded me of like how little of the world I've actually seen. And, you know, I'd like to see different cultures and experience the world. And I guess other than that, I'm really passionate about working out and you know, maximizing my energy levels and my health and fitness. So travel and anything health and fitness related. Awesome. Question number four, if you lost all your money and your assets tomorrow, how would you start again? Yeah, I guess a lot of people look at that as a negative question, but I actually look at that as that might not be a bad thing, right? It would actually teach you how to get started with less and be more resourceful. So I guess in that situation, if we lose it all and have to start again, I'd still use my strategies for hunting down great deals. I wouldn't change that. I guess I would stop using my own money and jump right into money partners and joint venture deals, all that sort of stuff, right? You're way better off to have 50% of something than 100% of nothing. So there's no shame in owning smaller percentages of properties with other people and getting your uh, equity and wealth that way. Absolutely. And final question, question number five, if somebody has $50,000 and they want to get started, how would you recommend that they spend it? Great question. Cause I was actually thinking about, you know, the quickest way to earn a million dollars in real estate with not much more than $50,000 either. So I've been thinking a lot about that here this week. And I guess if you have $50,000, and you want to maximize that, you need to be as creative as possible. So first of all, finding undervalued deals, even if it's only undervalued by 5%, that's still 5% that you've, you didn't have to pay down or wait for appreciation to gain that equity piece of it, right? You know, I'd encourage the owners to see if they would, you know, hold some sort of a vendor take back on the property. And definitely not the first question that you want to ask the owners, but it, it can be, should be a part of every one of your offers to make sure that you can really just maximize your return. Mm-hmm. And I'd encourage them to do it on multifamily because it's just a chance for them to push the value of the property up higher. So even if they had to buy it traditionally at 20% down, they're still buying a $250,000 property, which can get you a triplex, duplex, and still in a lot of cities in Ontario. Perfect. Great. So that was our lightning round. And so Corey, where can listeners find you if they wanted to reach out and know more about you? Yeah, if people want to stay in touch. I hang out a little bit on social media. So I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, not much of a Snapchat or on Twitter very much. My website's also being developed right now. So if they go to uh, CoreyMcKinnon.com, K-O-R-Y-M-A-C-K-I-N-N-O-N, they can definitely uh, stay in touch with me there as well. Perfect. And any final words of advice or anything else that you want to let the listeners know? I just wanted to let people know that, you know, sometimes you can be intimidated by investing in real estate. I mean, these are big numbers and probably some of the biggest investments that you'll ever make in life. But, you know... Make sure that you surround yourself with good people, whether it's your power team or your mentors or people who have done it before. 
And if you just need that little bit of encouragement or that little bit of nudge, then that will definitely be there for you. But, you know, don't wait to get started. There's deals to be found in every market, whether it's an up market or a down market. Right now, I find that the market's getting pretty heated up, right? But there's still deals to be found. So just keep at it. Keep working. Don't take your foot off the gas pedal because that's usually the death of most investors that, you know, you got to keep your foot on the pedal and keep your momentum up. And it's all about progress. So just keep making progress in all those different areas of being a real estate investor and you'll definitely see success. Awesome. So on that note, Corey, thank you so much for being on Where Should I Invest? I really appreciate it. No problem, sir. I appreciate you having me on here and looking forward to staying in touch over time. And congratulations on all the success that you've had here the past couple of years. Thanks very much, Corey. Take care. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larby. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.